Welcome to Making Waves, the podcast for curious business leaders, brought to you by Wavelength. Since 2008, Wavelength has taken over 2,000 leaders, physically and digitally, inside the boardrooms and shop floors, of some of the world's most admired, progressive, and successful organizations, and hosted in-depth conversations with highly accomplished leaders from the world, business, and beyond. We've run programs in Silicon Valley, China, India, and throughout Europe, going inside iconic organizations such as Apple, Alibaba, Netflix, Lego, and the Aravind iCare system. I'm Adrian Simpson, co-founder and chief connector of Wavelength, and in this episode, the focus is on insights into leadership, and joining me today is Terry Kelly, a leader I've had the pleasure of knowing for over 20 years, during her tenure as the president and CEO of W.L. Gorn Associates, a global material sciences company dedicated to transforming industries and improving lives, that is best known for consumer products like Gore-Tex Fabric and Elixir Guitar Strings. But it also sells a dazzling range of industrial products from fuel cell components to specialized plastics. Coming up in today's podcast. What I found with all the great leaders, it wasn't about them. It was never about their ego. It was never about this just it makes me look more powerful. It was always about we're going to make this organization stronger. So Bob Gore was really challenging. He, he was a very challenging individual, but had so many tremendous insights. You got to value the innovators. You can be innovative, but you also have to execute on the business. The real power is when you can actually say, yeah, we messed that up. Yeah, we, you know, we totally screwed that up. Or you know, we got this part right, we haven't figured this out. Because it shows the organization, one, you know, there isn't this magic, you know, all the right decisions come out. And it also shows you understand their pain points. Bill Gore always have a saying, if you can't find one person that believes in you to be your sponsor, that's probably a good indication <laughs> of whether your credibility and, and whether that this is the right home for you. Cited by the likes of Forbes and Fast Company as the world's most innovative company and subject to numerous case studies by the world's leading business schools, it's a real honour to be joined by Terry today. Indeed, since stepping down from W.L. Gore a couple of years ago, Terry is now a NED on the boards of two multi-billion dollar businesses. One operating in Holland in the semiconductor industry and one in the EOS in the business of heavy plant rental. And she's also the trustee of a prestigious hospital group. So in today's conversation, not only will Terry be providing insights into the unique W.L. Gore culture, but share lessons in leadership gleaned from her Gore days and most recent experiences. So Terry, welcome. We were talking about the, the uniqueness of the Gore culture, and you were talking about the, kind of the unique contribution of individuals. Yeah. Could you just yeah, expand upon that for us? So I, I think what Bill Gore really wanted was to get the, the power of the whole organization. When you think about innovation, it doesn't happen in one spot. It, it requires you know, empowered teams. It, it yeah. requires a different level of commitment to the organization. So that was kind of the essence of the culture. But I, but I think the story here is it was laser focused on this is going to make us more successful right. and have an impact on achieving the overall outcome of, you know, we had this beautiful new material and how are we going to, you know, exploit it into as many different applications. And I think that the feeling was you have to create an environment that really encourages the creativity, the innovation. And so that was the origin that led to, again, all these fun practices and, and fundamental beliefs that really, I think, form the foundation for, for Gore. And I'd love to just, just dig into those a little bit, because I think, you know, we, we were chatting earlier on today about, you know, we talked about, we, we spoke about how Gore, it's all about fellowship. Um, you know, a couple of things we touched upon was, you know, when you start at Gore, uh, you yeah. know, you're assigned a sponsor. Um, I think you're automatically assigned a sponsor. But after uh, you, you've been assigned a sponsor, you know, traditionally you're, you're, you want to, you're asked to sort of find a new one. Could you just, again, expand upon, you know, the, 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 what's the thinking behind assigning a sponsor 
we're talking about a new hire in a business, and how yeah. and how does that and that, how that sponsorship role plays out gives you an indication, I guess, of the culture and the new new employee. Yeah. The, the starting sponsor became a, a way to kind of codify that, and it's a very formal commitment. Everyone has a sponsor. A starting sponsor is even more critical because you think about that added responsibility of someone totally new, mm. you know, to the to the Gore organization, and it's a little bit different than a mentor. I think there was a mm. formality to mm. it that when you were asked to sponsor, it was a big deal because yes. it's also part of your commitment to help you know someone's livelihood beyond yourself and yeah. so it was also a pretty good indicator of future leadership folks that got asked to sponsor yeah. or had interests right it kind of showed okay it's not just about me and my development it's i'm actually now taking ownership of someone else's development and trying to help them flourish fantastic and, and so tell me about you know what did you learn from that sponsorship process so i think we spoke earlier and we were chatting in the car uh, this morning about you know it was really interesting um, read on the organizational you know communication yeah. flow who was really leading not really leading what yeah. just expand upon that you know what did that process of people having to find a sponsor tell you so a couple things i think sometimes when it's embedded in the leader yeah. you know and, and sometimes we have leaders that are also sponsors but they have to kind of think about what hat they're wearing yes because you think about it when you're leading a team yeah. Yes, you care about the individuals, but at the end of the day, you were trying to get the best out of the collective, yeah. right? And sometimes the best thing for that individual may be to move to another team, right, right. to develop. Sometimes the leader gets conflicted that way because yeah. that really upsets their, you yeah, know. Yeah. And so I think it also made it clear that, you know, you, you play different roles. So if you're going to be a leader, you have certain responsibilities. Mm. But when you put your sponsor hat on, mm. you also may have to make different choices of what might be in the best interest of that individual. Mm. So that was kind of one of the nuances. And I think um, as people got comfortable, because the starting sponsor may not be the right person for yeah. you, you know, in the next uh, six months or a year, the power then shifted to you as an individual. Who do I feel is a person that I really want to see, you know, be a sponsor? And mm. and obviously it's a two-way street. Mm. Both had to commit, mm. but you know it was very dynamic uh, because it became such an important relationship of mm. trust and be able mm. to share things mm. maybe you wouldn't even share with your leader, right? And things you're struggling with or struggling with them. And so I think that that relationship became really critical as a glue, right? A, a key practice that kind of helped this chaotic environment work and help people navigate through it did you have instances where you'd had somebody join the company they had a starting sponsor their existing sponsor said after nine months you to find somebody new and they couldn't find a new sponsor <laughs> or did you have instances where somebody who perhaps was in a uh, had a sort of prestigious job title i know you weren't big on job yeah. titles but was senior in the organization no one was asking them to be their sponsor. Did you have any instances yeah. like that? And what did you learn from that? Yeah, so Bill Gore always have a saying, if you can't find one person that believes in you to be your sponsor, that's probably a good indication <laughs> of whether, <laughs> which you, know, you could take that message. Your credibility. Yeah. Your credibility and, and whether that this is the right home for yeah. you. Uh, I, it is interesting because uh, I think when people were asked to be sponsors, I, I think for, for me anyway, it was an early sign. Here's someone that really shows leadership potential yeah. in terms of their caring about you know things beyond just themselves, but what's best yeah. for the you know the organization. whole organization. And yeah. so, um, so yeah, you, you you could get some insights. Let's put yeah. it that way from just who you know people wanted to be sponsored yeah. you know by and and just how how strong those relationships were. Fantastic. Yeah. So again, I just love to you know yeah. expand upon some of these sort of unique uh, practices within Gore. So I think the whole thing of sponsorship is is fascinating. And just, just to conclude on that, where is it typical that in Gore you have a sponsor throughout your career? Is that is that, is that kind of a cultural expectation that actually you will have a sponsor yeah. and you may find new sponsors as you go through? That's kind of a formal 
support structure in your career development? Yes, absolutely. And I think that's what made it, I think, um, stick versus a mentorship relationship yeah. can come and go. And a lot of companies yeah. say, we want to have mentees. Yeah. You know, the, the problem sometimes is it kind of goes in and it goes yeah. out versus there was a formality that everyone mm. in the company, even I needed a sponsor. Wow. So my sponsor was Bob Gore. Wow. As he became the chair of the company, he okay. also became my sponsor. And then later it happened to be his sister, Betty, who was a board member. So at the most senior level, you were expected to have a sponsor. Have a sponsor. And, and I thought that was powerful because then it kind of not made it optional, yeah. right? That people yeah, could yeah. opt out. Yeah. And I think people found pretty quickly that if you don't have a sponsor, you can quickly get lost yeah. in the system. Now, in fairness, some sponsors were better than others, and some yeah. use that relationship. Yeah. You know, yeah. we got more, much more out of the relationship yeah. than than others, and I think that's just the nature. Of, it's fascinating. I mean, I mean yeah. we at Wavelength, we we are great believers in the power of networks to help yeah. leaders succeed, and not the concept of networking, but the power yeah. of networks. And there's yeah. a, a brilliant methodology we we embrace called the personal boardroom, uh, written yeah. by wonderful uh, Dr. Zella King and Amanda Scott, and and um, they have this sort of vision that you have sort of really successful leaders have 12 seats around up to, yeah. up to 12 seats around a boardroom table that should be played by specific people yeah. uh, and you know maybe a coach maybe a mentor and one of those actually is, a, is, a, is like a sponsor and it's really interesting in the gore culture you're at least filling one you're really one getting people to yeah. at least one of those seats is being filled by somebody you know yeah. in, internally really and, and I, I think it's important to point that the sponsor is not the only person yes. you said you've got the leadership you've got other folks yeah. that maybe are the contrarian view yeah. and I really like that that concept where sense. you've got like a very diverse board that helps you yes, be successful absolutely. that became more individually driven as far as yeah. folks figuring out that for yeah. themselves but the sponsorship was kind of as I said codified in the organization <laughs> is you know you will have a sponsor and I again what struck me is just a really powerful concept to help the whole system work. Yes, so, absolutely. you know, it's, you know, it started with we're all associates, we're not employees because yeah. we are all owners in the company. And there's yeah. so many kind of rich examples of these practices that on the surface, they, they don't, they don't seem that great or seem that spectacular, but when you put them together to kind of, ah, oh, yeah. that's why this works, is it's kind of making sure all of this ecosystem works. has the right checks and balances in place to actually give it its best chance yeah, of, of flourishing. Absolutely. One of the other unique aspects of Gore is how you measure contribution, right? And I've never, <laughs> ever come across anything like this before. So as I understand it, you know, you, you basically, your remuneration, your salary, what you earned is a direct result of how... Yeah others in the organization view your contribution. Um, I, I, I just would I'd love you just to, to expand upon that because I just think you know, it's such a unique uh, and, and, and I think probably ultimately fair way of determining someone's true value to an organization. But the principle, again, goes back to uh, there was a real concern, particularly if you want a highly innovative organization, you got to value the innovators. And they may have like a great invention and then nothing happens for you know five years. And I think Bill Gore had the concern that if you kind of take the conventional way of paying folks, you know, if you go into higher levels of leadership, people management, you tend to make more money than maybe that, that brilliant innovator. And so the whole concept behind this is everyone can make an, a, a contribution and it's about impact. And that should be what determines your pay, not seniority not by title now for sure we do external benchmarking to, we, yeah. we do external benchmarking to make sure okay we also have to pay we always call it internally fair externally competitive okay but the internally is where we started because we we really wanted to hear the voice of the organization if it's kind of like if you have to start your own company yeah. who would you bring with you and who's making the greatest impact and and it 
the interesting thing is there weren't any boundaries. It wasn't like we had a checklist of criteria. It was like think broadly of who's making the greatest impact to the enterprise, not even just your team, the enterprise. And so it was a big burden even in putting that list together. I remember mm. like just you're tortured just trying to kind of come up with what, you know, what made sense. I think the change, you know, even though we had 10,000 people, the way we did work at Gore changed. So it, it was easy when mm -hmm. we had, I'd say, intact teams mm -hmm. working in close proximity. Mm. Fast forward to a global world, teams are actually part of maybe multiple teams. They're matrixed. working internationally, they're matrix. And some of the, the feedback I started here is, I don't know that these people fairly understand my contribution because they only see a piece of it. So we had to address, I'd say the fairness of, through the eyes of the beholder, right? Who are okay. the importers that can, and so we had to do some creative um, So adaption. just to be clear, so I'm working at Gore, I'm an engineer, right? And um, there's, a, there's a, a process to try and assess my impact and my contribution. Yeah. Who would select the people that were asked about my contribution? Was that a list that you put together and said, Adrian, we think you know these 10 people know you really, really well, therefore we're going to ask these 10 people. Did I have to nominate those people? Just take me through so, the nuances So that was a, a really interesting evolution, I think, in a powerful way. In the early days, we kind of just looked at who's in that same function with okay. you in proximity, yeah. and that would be kind of how the list yeah. got created. Okay. Um, and then you were asked, and then if you didn't know the person, you know, the discipline is you don't rank someone, you okay. just say don't know, right? Okay. And then you collect all that input, because obviously yeah. everyone has different views, so it's not, yeah. you know, typically you get some pretty strong signals of who's yeah. at the top. Yeah. You get some pretty strong signals usually yeah. who's at the bottom, yeah. there's a lot of churn, you know, yeah. in the middle. And so we would have committees, and these were folks that were, again, well-respected by their, yeah. you know, peers to look at that, all that data. Uh, just similar to the input process on leadership, and 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 then uh, we actually would plot the rankings and, and look at current compensation. And in the ideal world, right, the person that's having the greatest impact is making the most. The person that's taking, you know, you, you get the idea. So we would actually create a contribution curve, and then you would make adjustments, you know, based on well, one, you de debated the list, right? Do we have it in the right order? Are we being fair to individuals? So it was a very intense process, and people took it very seriously. Um, and at the essence, it was we really wanted to pay for contribution and impact and get, you know, get away from this person has this title, this person, you know, et cetera, et cetera. It was, it was all uh, about impact. What we had to evolve over time, you know, as, as I mentioned, is people were part of multiple teams. And, and who, how do I even know who their input? So what we actually did was we flipped the question and asked each associate, you know, name the five to ten people that you feel fairly understand your contribution and we were you know some guidelines you know think about your leadership think about your peers think about others in other teams you know so it wasn't just like a, a very right. narrow list right. and that gave us that was that became powerful now because then we could use that data and then triangulate with others that could then maybe do i'd say more of the conjoint analysis um and so it was more it was fair more in terms of where the data was coming from but it, it still kept the spirit of the process that it was knowledge-based based on impact what i love about it i mean mm -hmm. there's two things that occur to me one is you know who's better to judge your worth yeah. at organization a, a, a you know a typical classic corporate a boss that you may interact yeah. with you know once a month every three months once a year you know or whatever removed from your reality in, in, in the whole but secondly the notion that actually you don't have to because you know if you've got a great innovator what you want them to be doing is just innovate right and right. in classic organizations to go up in the organization, you have to take people on, you have to start leading people, 
you know, actually you go away from what you were really, really good at, right? So the notion of gore that actually, a, a, so is it, would it be true to say that, it, that, that if somebody was just a classic innovator whose, creation, whose contribution was valued really highly, they could be earning the same level as, as, the, as somebody on the executive board? I don't know about the executive board, but, but clearly uh, paid well beyond what you would probably see if you did any external benchmarking right. of, you know, a yeah. senior engineer is paid in this range. Yeah. And I think that was kind of the beauty of this is it, it, it allowed everyone to kind of continue to make the impact and not compromise what they really love to do or feel yeah. that there's like a right answer of yeah. a career track they need yeah. to take yeah. to be noticed, to be you yeah. know part. So I think that was the, the beauty of, of yeah. kind of the concept. Again, all going back to if we really want to be highly innovative, we really need good innovators. And we yes. need people that are passionate about that as their day job. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I'm going to come back to digging more yeah. in the gold culture in a minute, but I just well, I'm going to go over on a slight tangent because I, I know this morning when you spoke and you talked about Gore being a, an incredibly innovative organization, but you did talk about actually a moment in the organization when by, uh, somebody came up to you and confronted you with a bit of a kind of tough reality about yeah. these people who were being regarded as the best innovators in the organization. Could you, could you, could you uh, tell us? Yeah, story? So what, one of my learnings is as you get really good at this building this flywheel effect of your ecosystem, right? And yeah. that really encouraged. Uh, so we had to pivot uh, as we learned that you can be innovative, but you also have to execute on the business yes. to, to be, you know, to be viable. So yeah. we put a lot of energy into how do we also build muscle in business leadership, business execution, and uh, so I'm good, we're done, right? Lo and behold, I find out that that became kind of the overriding, uh, I'd say, voice in the organization that that really started to, I'd say, exert their influence okay. and, and power and so operational excellence, excellence business, yeah. and all the measures yeah. that you and so and so became the kind of currency of contribution, right? And yeah. and surely they also were highly influential okay. in their views, right, yes. of what made the you know yeah. the, the the right leader. And so a, a very brave individual who I, I, to this day, am so happy, uh, approached me and said, Terry, we have a problem. You know, we, we have half of our innovators on performance improvement plans. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And, and it finally dawned on me. It's because they didn't color within the, the lines, right? They did not fit the mold. In fact, they drove probably a lot of the execution people nuts, right? And so what we failed to appreciate is we almost needed both ecosystems to work and you have different measures, different people that are viewing the contribution and it all had kind of morphed right into, so we kind of went from one extreme of being this highly innovative with no execution focus to then moving to the other extreme of all about execution and now we're drowning out, you know, the, the very talent. And so we had to do a lot of soul searching to get that back in balance and a lot of work and even restructuring how to make both work, yeah. you know, in the Gore environment and, and still respect, you know, the, the, these two kind of two very different roles and responsibilities. Fascinating, <laughs> fascinating. And one of the things you talked about, uh, I know you talked about, is, is, is in the um, evolution of the Gore culture was purpose. And actually <laughs> that when the organization started, it had a very, very clear purpose. But as the organization got a bit older, perhaps it lost its the clarity of purpose, the sharpness, or the understanding of the purpose? Would that be a, a good assertion? I think we stopped talking about it. Right. I think it was another observation. I think this is a trap of having grown up in the organization. It kind of just oozed out of my you know, my pores because I, I work with the founders. You know, everyone surely understands our, our purpose. And then you think about how many new people join the organization. So I think probably over half of the leadership team had been with Gore less than 10 years. They weren't, I'd say, the lifers. So their appreciation of yeah. the purpose and their ability to articulate it 
uh, but they kind of sense, okay, yeah, we're about this, but but I I, I realize that you, you almost have to keep that top top of mind, and you even have to bring your leadership team team through an exercise of, okay, are we all really clear about the purpose? What are we here to do? Yeah. And then build that into the organization. I think now more than ever, you can't take it for granted because mm. you know you can have a strategy, you can have objectives. It's not sufficient, right? Mm. People want to understand. Okay, what are we doing all this for? And, mm. and you know what what's kind of that north star? So, I think the learning there is we started with a very clear purpose from mm. the founder, and we weren't carrying that forward. And mm. sometimes you know it has to evolve in terms of how you articulate it. But we were not talking about it, and we were not connecting it to the day-to-day -day work yeah. as much as we should have been doing. Yeah, well, great learning, great yeah. learning. I think related to that, one of the things, again, we just have on earlier in our pre-chat was around um, stories, actually. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and you, know, you told also the yeah. thing that, you know, there was a sense that perhaps you were guilty as a leadership team of telling the stories of the old goal yeah. Yeah. And, and not current um again you know could you just what what your you know i'm interested in your lessons you know as a as a, yeah. as a ceo and a leader i think that yeah. whole currency of storytelling is is fascinating it, it is and and very powerful and i so i think we were pretty good at telling the stories of the founders yes and people just kind of sucked it up yeah <clears throat> but fast forward you know now 50 60 years older the founders passed away you know yeah. people don't even know bob gore yeah it's interesting, but maybe not as relevant mm. in terms of what's going to motivate them. They wanted to hear the stories from us, you know, our stories as leaders. And, and I think what became challenging is, well, what is my story? What, what is the, the story that obviously builds upon, you know, our legacy, but it's not harking back 50, 60 years ago. You know, it's more of the story of today and the future. Mm. Uh, and and I want to hear it from my leader because I don't know, Bob, sounds like a great guy. <laughs> I want to hear it from my leader. So I think it was a whole new skill that we had to develop. And, and I would say equally uh, challenging in the Gore environment, we have a bunch of engineers and we just love to speak acronyms and technical geek. And if you can put more on a PowerPoint, so be it. And so I was guilty of that, right? Is even when I was presenting, I felt the more content, the better. Everyone's gonna feel like we really have you know our, our stuff together. And what you realize is it just went in one ear out the other, right? They, they did not retain probably a third, you know, un unbeknownst to me, you're doing all this work thinking you're, you know, you're building knowledge in the organization. And, it, and I think the learning is it's more about those, those, those stories, those yes. personal stories, yes. the engagement with individuals, you know, answering questions that aren't all pre-written, right? It's yeah. all kind of spontaneous yeah. is what people remember. And I think also aligned mm -hmm. to that, you also, during your leadership, mm -hmm. learned during the town halls how to communicate differently. <laughs> I know there's town halls where this concept where you get, it's not, it's not quite as widespread in Europe, but I know in North America, yeah. it's very, very widespread. These town halls, we get everyone together in a meeting yeah. hundreds, if not thousands of employees, and you try and cascade information down to them. But I think you were saying yeah. that, you know, you started off doing that in a kind of very structured way with lots of yeah. PowerPoint. Um, but how did that evolve over time? Yeah, so I, I think the concept of town halls are really powerful because I think, it, especially how lar if you're in a large organization, you think your message is getting through. Yeah. And then you find that the whisper down the lane, the cascade, message looks totally different you know then so so that's another way to two kind of core samples of okay are people really getting what our strategic objective so I think we, we got that part right that it kind of helps you kind of gauge and calibrate of yeah. are we communicating or how are the messages getting you know communicated the learning for me and just my personal style I almost felt I was ill-equipped if I didn't have my 100 point PowerPoint slide and and even though I I, I had a a sense I wanted to get input from the audience, but I'm spending all the time 
communicating to them and it kind of created a very different dynamic you're on transmit <laughs> yeah and and so one one lovely uh leader one day said, why don't you just show up and don't even use PowerPoint slides? And I was like, oh my God, I, I feel like I'm going to be totally you know, out of my element and just this sense of and what I realized, it was more about me needing to be armed with all the slides because you have the stories in your head, right? You have the narrative, you have, I think the m message you want to convey, but sometimes the, the PowerPoint and the words on the slide can take away from that. And it also can take away from the audience feeling comfortable asking those provocative questions or, or taking it in a direction that you never anticipated the conversation was going to go. So I found that no slides show up and open up the dialogue. You probably get more out of it than you do. And, and, and I, that's sometimes uncomfortable for leaders mm. to kind of feel that they have, but I actually, actually it's very powerful and you, and I think it's much more um, valuable to the audience of what they take and retain, you know, from those those sessions yeah. that they got something. But you're out talking of it. about authenticity, aren't you? Yeah. I mean, it's you about vulnerability. I mean, you're talking about actually as a leader, just kind of removing like the armor was the PowerPoint, right? Yeah. You were yeah. saying, if I had my hundred yeah. slides, I, I, that was my suit of yeah. armor. I felt I was bulletproof, yeah. and actually, you stripped that away, and you're standing there in front of hundreds yeah. of employees, just. Asking questions, being it, but there's a great value in that authenticity, that vulnerability, yeah. you know, that accessibility that, you know, so I can, I can see why it became yeah. so powerful and what a lovely bit of feedback from your, you know, how brave and how wonderful that your, your peer said to you, you know, to, to, to yeah. stop using those. And, and I think, you know, everyone has a different style, but I think that's another thing I learned early on is, is you, you know, by saying you don't have it all figured out. And this yeah. is tough as a leader. Yeah. And I think particularly a female leader, because there is this high expectation you know, you're in the role and you've got to have all the answers. You've got to have everything, you know, equipped. And I think you reach a point where the real power is when you can actually say, yeah, we messed that up. Yeah, we, you know, we totally screwed that up. Or, you know, we got this part right. We haven't figured this out. Because it shows the organization, one, you know, there isn't this magic, you know, all the right decisions come out. And it also shows you understand their pain points, right? You, you know, so it's giving more of, of an understanding that you have a sense of what's really happening in the organization. And it invites so much more conversation, right? Because I, I will tell you, so many meetings I've had, well, we just assume you knew this, you know, versus it opens up a conversation where you actually get feedback that you maybe never heard, right? In terms of what we're doing well or not doing well. Yeah. Um, it just changes the whole, I'd say, dynamic in the room. You know, you've just, shared a couple of examples of, of things you've learned but I guess you know you've you've well you mentioned Bob Gore and you worked alongside some yeah. amazing leaders um and I'm sure you've seen some um leaders perhaps you prefer not to follow right um I just <clears throat> loved to reflect upon you know what what have you learned from the best that you've yeah. worked alongside and perhaps what have you learned from the worst that you've worked alongside yeah. or observed? And I think we've all, we've all learned, you, you probably learned as much from those that maybe you don't want to emulate. So the one thing I learned, they're all different. Like, I don't think there's a cookie cutter approach that, uh, so Bob Gore was really challenging. He, he was a very challenging individual, but had so many tremendous insights. He could just cut laser through what the issue, so he cut through the complexity yeah. And get to the, the the most important point that needed to be discussed, and kind yeah. of take all the noise away. And yeah. so I really admired them him about that. And that's sorry, just that is fascinating because we yeah. we once had the privilege of, of uh, interviewing John Seely Brown, who was the president of Xerox Park in yeah. Palo Alto, yeah. the venture of the mouse, mm -hmm. the Ethernet, laser printing. And we asked him about you know what's the role of leadership, and he said number one is finding a signal in the noise. He said, yeah. the signal of the noise, he said, your people are just overwhelmed with inputs. They just, they, you know, like stakeholders left, right, and center, 
coming at them with new information, new ideas, you know, do this, do that, do that. And he said, and it was really interesting, he said, what great, one of the traits of yeah. great leaders is finding the signaling in the noise and saying, this right now is the most important thing you need to focus on, you know, get on with it, I'll give you the air cover, I'll give you the resources, and really giving that clarity yeah. of direction. So that, that uh, it clearly is a strength that I've seen. Yeah. And then how you then communicate that and engage the organization, very different styles. Yeah. Um, Bob was a little bit more direct, so yeah. he, some people were intimidated by him, to be honest. <laughs> I used to be the Bob decoder, you know, what he really meant to say. Um, and then others had a, a, just a natural style of kind of yeah. bringing the audience along. They knew the answer, if you know yeah. what I mean, but they wanted to bring yeah. the audience to, you know, kind yeah. of give the context to get them to that yeah. learning. So it was more of a learning journey. What I found with all the great leaders, it wasn't about them. It was never about their ego. It was never about this just get, makes me look more powerful. It was always about we're going to make this organization stronger. So they had funny ways of showing it or different ways of showing it. But what I came to respect, that's okay if it comes from a, a good place where it's really all about the organization, not about them fulfilling their own personal ego and, and so forth. I'd say uh, some of the leaders, contrast that with some of the leaders that I would say maybe I had struggles with it wasn't clear that they were really there for the best of the organization. It was much more about needing to be the center of attention, center of decision-making, center of control. And, uh, and so those would be the, what I'd yeah. contrast. Doesn't mean that style, you know, some were much more approachable, some were much more, I'd say, down to earth. But I think, you know, you can have different leadership styles if you have kind of some basic fundamental, you know, ways of how you're approaching it and why you're even in the leadership role to begin with. What are those, so what did those insights, those, what, what, how do they inform how you led? So if you were to reflect back and yep. say, right, at the helm of, of I'm sure it evolved, right? Yep. But like, what would be your reflections on the, the, the key ways in which you led, the key behaviors you demonstrated, yeah, your yeah. core beliefs? I'd just love to kind of like, you know, how did you spend your time? What questions did you so ask? I, what was important <laughs> to you? You know, what worked? Yeah, so I, I, if I go back to, you know, we all do those strength finders, and one of mine was I, I have this great need for connecting the dots for people to understand and and so for me you know the, the success was when the light bulbs go on like ah I get it now I understand where and so for me it's about communication it's about setting context now interesting I learned the hard way that there's a right way to do that and there's probably ways that you know are less less effective so so that kind of helped, I'd say, inform, you know, and part of setting that context is people need to feel you're approachable. So for me, that was a big one, like that people don't feel you're in this kind of ivory tower, yes. that you walk the halls, you go to town halls, yeah. and, and you're just, you're again, you're just like a normal associate. Yeah. You are, there's nothing different about yeah. what you, you know, you're doing. And I think giving people comfort there allowed more, I'd say, open dialogue in yeah. terms of people challenging, people feeling comfortable of, of pointing out where we need to be you know, better. So that, that for me was really key. So accessibility. Accessibility, mm -hmm. uh, approachability. Mm -hmm. And then I would say being genuine. Yeah. You know, again, I, I think, and I, I give a lot of credit to Gore, we didn't like fancy language. You know, we, oh, I always got you know, critiqued if I started you know, the last business book I read and it starts to creep into our, yeah. you know, into our language. And, and I think it came from a place where we have to talk in simple language that people understand and don't bring all this other level of, that needs translating, right? Yeah. That, that, and so I think that was another thing was authenticity, try to simplicity of, of message or clarity of, yeah. of message were, were very in, important to me. And then I think that human factor, I, I would say even when we had to make tough decisions around possibly letting someone go, 
people pay attention to how you treated that individual, you know, and, and, and so I, I, I think that empathy part was also yeah. pretty critical that, yeah, at the end of the day, we are running a business. It's tough. Yes. But you can still show empathy yeah. throughout that process or really being considerate of, okay, how do we, you know, minimize the impact, right, yeah. that individuals yeah. have a soft landing. Well, you're always on stage as a leader, aren't you? That's the thing. Someone said to me, you're always on stage, you know, and people are watching you, you know, when you're on stage, you know, when you're walking down the corridors, when you're in your office, when you're, you know, in your unguarded moments, you, you're always being, yeah. you're always being watched and always being observed. And I, so I think it's easier, yes, yeah. but I think if you just show up as a human being, yes. it feels like yeah. it's less of like one, yeah. you, you screwed yeah. it up, one event, yeah. like you get, you get a little bit of a pass, I yeah. have to say, yeah. because you, you're, you're part of the organization yeah, exactly. there was a funny yeah. show you may remember which the undercover boss oh yes yes and i had gotten a call um one day you know to you know to be on the show and everyone started laughing i said there is no way this woman can go anywhere that people aren't going to know who she is i don't care if we put like a beard on her you know hair and, and that was that made me proud because you know when I see that show and I see folks that have never even seen their leader and even if you yes. disguise them, yes. and and to me that that just feels so it's validation of a great culture. It's is a the validation fact that, yeah, yeah, that yeah. you know even if you're in Spain, you yeah. know miles away, that yeah. they know, you know Terry who Gullius. you yeah. are. Yeah. And, and that was important to me, yeah, right? Even if I can't physically be at every yeah. plant, I want yeah. that touch point. Uh, well, you know, I mean, I've, I mean, I've had the pleasure of, you know, spending 25, 30 years going yeah. inside the boardroom shop floor to great companies yeah. and, and hosting um, sessions with other, other great leaders like yourself and this whole thing about accessibility, vulnerability, openness. I mean, when we spoke last year, we hosted a session with Jesper Broden, Ikea's chief exec. Mm. And, um, you know, he's the executive CEO of, of Ikea Retail. And he spends four days a year on the shop floor yeah. in yellow and blue with a badge on that just says Jesper serving customers alongside his co-workers, right? So literally, as a customer in Ikea, you're walking around, you just see what looks like a, a normal uh, Ikea employee wearing yellow and blue with a Jesper badge on. You walk up to him, he will serve you. You have no idea he's the CEO of the, organ of the, of the retail no, business. No. But he says, you know, he gains so much about being there on the front line, serving and, and, customers. And what's, what matters, is, so I think that you bring up, and Bob yeah. Gore, I think, taught me well on this one, is I don't care if your role is the CEO. If we're not serving a customer or we're not answering the phone, he will go right to that. You know, he'll be that fake person that calls up. <laughs> And then he'll remind people, yeah. you know, it took me 10 calls to, but I think doing those core samples of, yes. you know, you, I, I think you can get so caught up in, we've got these great processes and oh. this great vision and these great, and then the execution just fails miserably. Totally. And, and it can be the little things, yeah. as you know, it's not the big things, it's Absolutely. usually little things. And if you're not paying attention yeah. to that, or worse, you're not willing to roll your sleeves up. Yeah and help fix, yeah. you know, that's what they organize. So they don't see you as a CEO. They see, okay, you're pulling in the same direction that we are, Absolutely. and you understand our pain points. Yeah. I think that builds so much credibility Absolutely. in the organization. I'm smiling at you talking because uh, well, I do um, some public speaking, and one of the things I talk about is a customer obsession, customer centricity. Yeah. And mm -hmm. one of the questions I always pose to the audience is, how's your sales prevention department doing? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and in my experiences, organizations unlimitedly have mm -hmm. what I would call a sales prevention department, right? Mm -hmm. And it is the, it, it is, it's those pain points. It's the phone call, which isn't answered within, or you know, your call, our call is terribly important to us. Your call at number yeah. 147. You know, it's the it's impossible to navigate web, website yeah. where I just want to, I have a need. You've got a product. I literally can't pay you because it's so complicated. Yeah. It's the poorly trained employee, the reception mm -hmm. or, or the hotel or lobby that, 
you know, just turns you immediately, you lose faith in the brand, right? You know, and so I think it's so important for, you know, people laugh and they smile and say, yeah. how's your sales prevention department yeah. doing? And then yeah. they sort of go, well, oh, that's a really good question. And I think it comes about from testing those things, putting yourself in the, 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 right. the lives and the roles of your consumers, your clients, your customers, and experiencing your brand from that yeah. perspective. So I love that. And I, I think it plays into structural issues because I think what sometimes causes that is you get very siloed. Yeah, you know, by absolutely. your function, by your expertise. And I think another, you know, I, I think thing Gore got right was we're all part of a connected team. And the more I understand about your role, you know, and, and your pain points and vice versa, yeah. you know, you're going to have a much more, I'd say, holistic view of kind of what it, you know, what that experience is. Yeah. And I think where it gets, I'd say, a bit dysfunctional is when folks measure their success clearly within their boundaries, right? Absolutely. So I, I think, but but I think modeling that at the highest level, that you're willing to drop everything yeah. to do, kind of set the example. And those messages uh, travel uh, quite, uh, in, in fact, I have a, a fun story you Go just on. remind me of. I went to China and, um, you know, this is early days when we expanded our operation of our Gore-Tex operation in Shenzhen. And of course, lots of concerns about intellectual property and how are we going to protect our intellectual property. And, uh, and so that team in China knew very well how important this was. And, yeah. and their, part of their job was to make sure that protection they upheld the protection yeah. of IP. So I show up for a meeting and, and you can imagine it's hard enough for them not to be formal, right? Even yeah. though in a gore culture, you know, they're painting walls and, you know, yeah. before I arrive, I get into a meeting with a group of our process engineers <clears throat> that you know obviously had a lot of ownership or you know technology group and i started like probing all these questions about how we're making and questions i had no reason to ask and i was just nosy because i came from the fabric engineering background right (laughs) and he's smiling he's dodging the question dodging the question and he has this big smile on his face that says terry do you really have a need to know And that was our language for, you know, as much as you share, you yeah. also, when it comes to intellectual property, yeah. you have to be very careful of who needs to know. Yeah. And you would heard a pin drop because they're all like, oh my God, he's going to be fired. You know, she just like, he basically just told the CEO, she's not going to get this information. That story rippled through the organization because I laughed. I said, you are absolutely right. I'm just nosy and I have no right to know because I don't know what I'd even do with it if you told me. <laughs> and and so just, you know, everyone just kind of calm. But I know that transferred of someone taking cur- the courageous, yes. right, even. And so, yeah. but those stories, right, yeah, they yeah. kind of permeate the organization of like, like take it to the test, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, but also as well, you know, my reflection is, you know, mm. you told, that's the second story. You told mm. the story earlier about the um, engineer coming to you telling you, Terry, we have a problem around, you know, half our innovators yeah. are on performance reviews. The moment, that, the way that you reacted to that story, I suspect yeah. it was also why you had such fellowship at Gore as well, because yeah. you were actually, you know, you, you the stories of how Terry likes to know how it is, right? You are yeah. open, you are accessible. If you tell her we've got a major problem, half our innovators on performance appraisal reviews, she'll do something about it. She's not going to, you know, if, yeah. you, if yeah. you if you tell her quite rightly, this is, do you need to know this information, Terry? Yeah. And yeah. the answer is yeah. no. So the, I think that's also Well, the, well, the sad it's part really of that reality is there's a lot of assumptions about what we do know. And, yes. and as, as much as you feel like you're in contact, yeah. you know, as it gets you know, yeah. large and complex, yeah. the worst thing that happens is they assume you know and you're not doing anything about it. And yes. so I think that was the other learning that I had is how do you make people understand that as much as I want to know everything that's happening in this entire organization, it's just not practical. So assume I don't know. Yes. And then, you know, then then we can have a, a conversation, conversation because uh, the worst thing is that 
leadership is kind of viewed as clueless. Yes. They, they're not in touch with their, and it's, you hear a lot of that feedback, right? And, and to me, that just pains me because that means we're not mm. doing our job mm. of messaging, connecting, you know, to the, to the broader organization. Yeah, fascinating. And I just love this, you know, the whole, I mean, you touched about it now, but, you know, this whole thing about the role of leaders being open, being accessible, you know, being out there. You know, I think one of your quotes, I think it was yeah. a John Maxwell quote mm. you, you, you used, which is, you know, leaders become great not because of their power because of their ability to empower others which i think yeah. is 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 fantastic um like you know we're related well i love i love there's a herb Kelleher quote which is you know power should be reserved for weightlifting and boats which i just <laughs> think is a brilliant you know yeah. the late great founder of southwest airlines herb Keller. just talk about empowerment you know yeah. what, what it's, a, it's a it's a word that's used a lot but there's a lot of pressure even when i took over the ceo role particularly as a female, that you had to have the answers, that you had to be decisive. And so you kind of can get sucked into that where people want you to be that all-knowing, all-being individual. And I think you have to resist that. And, and I think you have to save those decisions for the most important things where it does matter that you have to be in, in the center and then really think about all those other decisions. You know, who are the right people? to be making those. And so I always would say when people are coming to me too often for the same, like an answer, yes. and I'm like, wow, why, why did they come? They should have mm. known they could do that. Mm. I would say, well, what have I done to kind of give them the, mm. the, the boundaries? You know, we, we have another one of our, our principles, which is the waterline principle. And the origin of the water, we had a lot of boat analogies. So this analogy, think of a boat and you yeah. have the waterline in the boat. And, and Bill Gore was trying to think of a way to empower people, you know, so you can drill as many holes as you want underneath the, the or above the waterline, right? Because you're not going to sink, sink the ship, right? And the whole concept there is it's very freeing once you kind of figure out where your waterline. And part of that is just, okay, this is within my authority or my, you know, responsibility. But if you're going to drill one below, you probably should consult with, you know, a few people. So it kind of, we had that gut feel of, of just discomfort. Yes. It's probably the time that you may be drilling holes below the waterline. So the, the whole principle was to get people kind of calibrated. And of course, over time, your waterline might, might go down, right? You might actually have more opportunity to, to drill holes. So it was up to you to kind of kept testing that. But yeah. once you had it, yeah. the expectation was drill away, you know, in other words, take risks because <laughs> yeah, yeah. the, the concern in our organization yeah. without that clarity and of yeah. accountabilities, yeah. you know, people just get paralyzed. Absolutely. Right. But that was just another way of empowering, of just giving kind of the, the guardrails, if you will. I, I've heard it. I, I've heard organizations called freedom in a framework. What yeah. people need is freedom in a framework. Yeah. And what I love about that waterline is you're yes. visualizing the framework, right? Yeah. It's a really powerful visual, right? And, and, uh, yeah, I think it's you know so clever to say right yeah above the waterline you know feel free just to poke holes and, and it's uh, dynamic yeah. and I think it put a lot of ownership on the individual to figure out where that personal yeah. waterline yeah. is and obviously when you join the company it's probably you know it's it's pretty high you know in yeah. terms of you're you're consulting a lot but the expectation is that you start to get comfortable well, I can make this decision yeah. I, I got support yeah. to make the last time and sometimes you get it wrong by the way sometimes you get it wrong so oops I kind of overshot that one. <laughs> And that's okay. I think that that's okay. But again, another kind of fun, creative way to bring kind of this whole ecosystem yeah. to life. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I just wanted to pick up actually also just about language. I mean, yeah. waterline is a really powerful yeah. visual. Um, I know you talked about, you know, language in business is really important, right? And yeah. I, in one of my observations, again, is a lot of sort of mainstream corporates spectacularly overcomplicate things, yes. you know, and... Um, and I know that you know what, that that Gore was in certainly in latter years. You were in kind of in a, a an evolution of the culture, right? Um, could you talk about sort of your view on 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 
the importance of language, on the importance of words, and, and, and how clear you need to be with people. Because even the word empowerment can mean one thing to one person and something yep, completely absolutely. different to somebody else. So could you yeah. talk a little bit about kind of your views on, on language mm -hmm. and words and the importance you need to place on those as leaders? Yeah, and I, th I think I, again, learned from the best here uh, for getting reprimanded, you know, again, <laughs> reading the latest, you know, book, and then you start bringing in other language. And I, and I, I, I'm not criticizing consultants, but they also want to bring in, infuse their language. And so that, there was a period in our history of Gore where we, you could see who we were working with because then this new language would creep in, you know, to the organization. And the danger of that, to your point, is it was confusing. To, yes. People didn't understand it. And I would say even the language you have, uh, I found even with my leadership team because I understood what that language meant. Yes. But here's a leader that came from another organization where empowerment meant something totally different. So the other calibration is even yeah. if you've got the consistent language and you've got to be really disciplined about not letting all these buzzwords, you know, creep into your vocabulary because, again, it just creates adds to the complexity. Mm. But even when you adopt language like empowerment, you have to sit down with your leadership team. What does this actually mean mm -hmm. so that we all are communicating, mm. you know, even the same words mm. in, in the same spirit of kind of what does that what that mean? So I, I learned the hard way not only does words matter the understanding of those words and how they are interpreted and how they then drive behavior is as important as just agreeing on the vocabulary mm -hmm. and that takes a lot of work as as leaders so you might say okay this is exhausting but getting that right to the organization and having some form of consistency where you know we're really wor working on the complex problems that we're trying to solve versus the complexity is just what we <laughs> we created yeah. by all of our confusing you know uh, stories and languages so yeah, yeah. Fascinating. I, I think that that um, I'm smiling when you're saying, you know, the, the consultants come around the organization and yeah. suddenly everyone is shouting yep. the latest buzzwords mm -hmm. from McKinsey or whatever. Mm -hmm. I think it's uh, so true, and I doubt will ring true with lots of lots of listeners as yeah. well. I wanted to talk a little bit about the um, the, the, the you I alluded a moment ago. So the Gore, you know, went through a significant change process to the end of your tenure, and you know, I've spent sort of you know. 20, 30 years going inside and some great companies around the world. And I want to talk about one of the, le the lessons that you, the, around how do you transform a culture and the importance of alignment in a business, right? Yeah, and, yeah. And, and, and so, you know, when you're trying to shift the culture of an organization, um, you know, it's an incredibly hard thing to do. You know, I've seen examples of, of tremendous misalignment between the businesses this is what we want to stand for, but actually what gets recognized, rewarded, and remunerated yeah. is completely different. So everyone's right. like, they're talking about us being customer-centric, they're talking about innovative, and they got promoted because they made sales performance or budget cuts or, or whatever it is. You know, what's right. your, you know, your lessons around that in critical component? I see it as a yeah. critical component is, is alignment, about really ensuring, you know, what your measure, recognizing, rewarding is what you're saying you yeah, want. Yeah, and, and two thoughts there. I think because we work so hard to create the language, create the ecosystem, yeah. create that kind of flywheel effect and just when you got it all perfected you need to pivot you know and so the the, the interesting part of leadership is it's it's a point in time so yes. gore's had i think inflection points where we recognized in the ideal world you'd want it to evolve so it's yeah. not like a revolution yeah. but sometimes it needs to be more of that revolution where you have to you know yeah. actually drive the organization my, my learning there particularly if it cuts deep at a cultural value particularly you think you've got long-term associates that i joined this company and this is what my belief system is you know it's one and the same and now you're proposing something mm -hmm. that is 
you know, pretty much violating mm. my personal belief system. That's pretty deep stuff. And so I, I learned the hard way uh, as an engineer. You think you can logic your way out of this and you're going to be able to you know, give this compelling rationale mm. why we need to do it. Got a lot of head nodding. So we're all together why we need to make a shift. So one of the shifts we, we talked about was you know, we had created a very complex system of how Gore operated with mm. a lot of individual teams kind mm. of deciding on how they want to operate in, in language, their own internal language and their own IT systems, you name it. And you fast forward to a world where you've got to connect this for the customers. Customers don't want a different response. So they go to one location to the other. They want answers quickly. We need to get answers to our, our teams quickly. And we had created just a convoluted mess uh, all from the spirit of really encouraging creativity and individual kind of solutions that just don't work, right? Yes. And, and so trying to get the organization to appreciate the and, right? We yeah. we want creativity where we're going to get paid for it mm -hmm. <laughs> and where it's actually going to you know drive value for the company. But we have to think of all that other stuff is actually wasteful. And so I think the learning there is I spent probably the first couple years uh, spinning my wheels because it was so obvious to me and I thought we communicated logically. What I failed to do is, is really address at the core, are you telling me I have to change my values? And mm -hmm. so, and what, what I learned there is it, it was truly the and. We mm -hmm. wanna value that individually, mm -hmm. but in this context. Mm -hmm. But we also need to appreciate that that actually is not helpful to the whole organization. And so it's kind of meeting people where they are and, and not just saying this is old news you know, because people almost felt you were, you were saying you didn't value the culture anymore. Like it was all kind of glopped together versus really unpacking that a bit more and just talking about, okay, yes, it's true. We, we value this and here's the reasons we value it. But this is where it actually isn't helpful and get people to kind of on a journey to, okay, it's okay. I understand that you're not saying you don't value one of my core beliefs, but we just need to maybe, you know, bring it to a, a you know, a different environment today. Absolutely. So that, that was the hard part is I, you know, even knowing Gore as well as I know, knowing the hot buttons still was not able to get at that deepest level. And I think that is why you see so many companies stumble with change, right? Because they, they try, it's like big, moving that big tanker ship and they can't understand why they're really not moving the needle. And it's typically because it hits a, a cultural nerve very deep in the organization and you've got blockers <clears throat> that that you don't even know they're there right because you also the other risk i think we run is you are talking to your senior leaders and everyone's nodding their head but at the end of the day what most people experience in large organization is that person that they you know they see every day yes. right that that direct line yeah. leader and sometimes they can be the hardest, right? Yeah. Especially they're long-term entrenched. Yeah. And, yeah. and so you've got to get to them yeah. and get them to believe. And yeah. so it's a, it's a, a lot harder exercise. I'm just yeah. going to pull my core leadership team yeah. together of 10, yeah. job done, not even close. Yeah. And when the, for the big change you're talking about, and this mm. is like one of those big mm. changes where you're really transforming you know, part of the company, uh, it takes all of your effort. It, it, mm. You have to double down with that senior leadership team, and then you've got to go really deep in the organization yes. to kind of make sure that there's that understanding and support for what you're trying to do, or you will spin your wheels. <laughs> relentless communication yeah. right down the organization. It's relentless yeah, yeah. communication, and, and I will say also making some hard decisions. I yeah. will tell you at the end of the day, there were folks, even after the relentless communication, they would not change. And I think that this is hard for me. They can't stay in the organization. I mean, there's a point in time where they're holding everyone else back because of their own beliefs. And you don't want to go there. You want to give them every opportunity. But there is a time and place, even in companies that cares deeply, it's not like they didn't contribute, but they just could not transform 
with the organization and they were kind of stuck in the past. So that's another interesting challenge uh, for leadership. I, I think it's, you know, I, I've heard people say, you know, you've got to start where the energy is. You know, you try and identify the kind of early yeah. adopters. Then you, you know, you then have to, you, you, your great leadership then is that relentless obsessive communication trying to make the case. But ultimately, you have to say the train is now leaving the platform. It, are you on the this, train? Are you on the yes. train? Yeah. And if you're not, we love you and respect you, but it's time for you to go, go, go get on a different train going a different direction. Yeah. Because, you know, you have to suddenly just call it as a leader and yeah, I think it's a very I think, so hard so that's probably one do. of my mistakes is, is sometimes holding on too long yes. because of that belief in the individual yes. and the personal connection yes. that I had to these individuals and yes. also understanding they really love the company it wasn't yeah. like if you know performance yeah. issues are different right yeah. but they really love the company they were the hardest yeah. for me to deal with yeah. it's, it's tough but i think you know sometimes the right thing is you have to call it and, and encourage yeah. people to have, find happiness elsewhere most of the leaders that i talk to um very few of them say we got the timing right yeah. they, they always recognize one they, they were so concerned about you know that loss or that yeah. conversation but then once it's done it's like oh, i wish i did this a year mm. two years three years ago and then Oops. as you said then you get all the feedback <laughs> of how maybe how much it was holding back the yeah, organization absolutely. and you don't see it until that person has left it's tough it's it's very tough and i so i i feel that and because again i think that that desire to also again see value in everyone yeah. you know makes it really hard absolutely i we could talk today i mean i just i just wanted to just almost in to draw to conclusion i just want to just reflect a little bit back on on um i, I guess we recently interviewed alan jope um yeah. unilever's uh chief exec and and um one of the things that's very becomes very apparent is it's, it can be quite lonely as a leader it can be very tiring as a leader very exhausting when you're on stage all the time you're often traveling you're working but he talked about you know um being very um self-aware and also about you know being very attuned to where he got his energy from you know, and yeah. you are a you're a very you know you're a very engaging very energized uh, individual that in, all the time we've known each other it's, it's always been the case you know you you but you know, how much so as suppose you reflect back as your time as a ceo where did you get your energy yeah. from and, and you know how did you what how much how conscious were you of ensuring that you were on your game yes. fresh yeah. energized you know how, how much priority did you play on that so i've got my energy again by connecting messages and just seeing the light bulbs go on okay. you know where people really felt that empowerment that people really felt connected to the the broader purpose i mean that was just magic to me you know and and, and then obviously then you saw the success and you could enjoy in the sex this is uh <laughs> success <laughs> <laughs> and and could enjoy you know and all kind of feel part of that uh it sucked all the energy out of me so the mm. the irony of this story we were doing those tests where you're are you an extrovert or you're introvert and everyone had me pegged as this like extreme extrovert because all they saw was all this energy yeah. pouring out in the organization i was exhausted when i went home the last thing i wanted to do was talk to someone on the phone the last thing i would do so my behavior kind of pouring all my energy into my job was very different than you know because I almost needed home to recharge and and not have all that stimulus. So for me, it was sitting on the beach for you know a, a Saturday and absolutely have no one that I had to really you know talk about or think about. So so it, it kind of painted a very different picture of kind of how you saw you know where I got my energy. So I got a lot of energy of advancing the the purpose of Gore. Uh, but probably used a lot of that up, you know, as I tried to recharge and just found time for myself, for my family, and, and just kind of personal, you yeah. know, personal uh, uh, energy. So that that's kind of a, an interesting, I, I'd say, story. Um, the, on the self-reflection, I feel I'm a pretty 
good persons. I've seen folks that are not self-aware and I see the impact yes. of that. And you're like, I do not want to be that kind of leader. Right. So I also know we all have blind spots. So I intentionally surrounded myself with a leadership team that one, I knew would tell me if the emperor has no clothes and two, that didn't think like me. So one of the other interesting parts of that, the story of me getting the CEO role is, as I was thinking about my leadership team, uh, one of the senior leaders who clearly was in the, the you know the running to be the, the CEO. We were very different individuals, but brilliant guy, cut to the chase. Um, I thought he'd be really helpful, you know, to kind of maybe damper my passion a bit. You know, he was the kind of the opposite of, of me, and we were very complimentary. And I think that's another strength of leaders is to you know kind of intentionally put yourself in that so you don't have all the people that think like you, but actually are going to challenge you. Uh, is going to make you more self-aware, right? And it's also going to make sure your blind spots, you know, someone else is looking out and has your back. So, yeah, so that would be my approach is, is you know, because you can quickly, particularly in the most senior positions, people don't feel it's okay to tell, give feedback yes. to senior yeah. leaders, right? Yeah. And so it's yeah. a very, not only a lonely place, you get more and more isolated and you yeah. think even your closest you know, leaders are going to give you the straight story and you have to really, you have to really pull that out. Cause I think it, it's, it's very uncomfortable for folks to want to do that. Right. And so I think you have to make it both uncomfortable and you have to actually reach out for it yeah, yeah. Um, to, to get that feedback. Very open to it. Just thank you for that was a, yes. you know, very honest, clear, compelling, you know, story <laughs> through, you know, the, some insights of the Gore culture, yeah. insights into your leadership journey, some reflections on, on lessons of leadership. So, you know, thank you. Uh, yeah, it was, it was, I, it was absolutely it. wonderful. And the journey continues. I think that's the <laughs> other learning here is now I'm not at Gore, but how do you kind of apply absolutely. a lot of this in, in a, yeah. again, with different companies, different different environment. And I think that that's kind of what makes it exciting and yeah. continues to be exciting. <laughs> so good seeing you again, Adrian. It's been fun. But yes. So, thank you very much. All indeed. right. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much for tuning into today's Making Waves podcast with the fantastic Terry Kelly, former president and CEO of WL Gore and Associates. If you enjoyed it, please check out some of our other podcasts, such as Fred Reed, the former founding CEO of Virgin America, president of Lufthansa, president of Delta Airlines, who also worked five years with Brian Chesky at Airbnb and also with Larry Page in his private company, Kitty Hawk. So in that incredible experience has gave him some amazing stories to share on lessons in leadership. Also did an amazing podcast last year with Elizabeth Bryant, vice president of people at the legendary Southwest Airlines that really gets into their reputation for excellence around people, culture and service. All our podcasts are available on the usual platforms, so please check them out and stay curious.